Hi, I'm John Atak and this is Lyrical Wax. I'm Ursula Wake. Um, we're going to read some poems by one of my favourite poets, Charles Causley. Um, I think his work has not been appreciated as much as it should be, perhaps because m almost all of his work is rhymed. Um, and we live in the age of free verse where, you know, William Carlos Williams, in fact, said, you know, there is no point in rhymed poetry anymore. Um, I don't think that's true. Uh, I think there's a point in ev every form. Um, you know, I write largely in, in free verse myself, but every now and then a limerick or a little mm. bit of doggerel or, or sometimes an actual rhyme poem creeps in. Uh, I think Causley is one of the great poets. Um, and I've, over the years, read quite a lot of his, his work. I've also read this very good uh, biography or Cornwall Thunders at My Door by Lawrence Green. Um, Causley was born in 1917 in Launceston in Cornwall. Um, apart from serving in the Royal Navy during World War II, he spent his life in Launceston. Uh, he was a school teacher. And although he didn't see uh, combat himself in World War II, he lost many of his um, comrades um, mm. on ships that went down. So there is a certain melancholy. Um, he remained a bachelor throughout his life. We have no idea about his sexuality whatsoever. Um, but he expresses a tremendous tenderness. He writes beautifully about mm. children and about nature. So um, we will start with this poem, which is called The Prisoners of Love. Trapped in their tower, the prisoners of love loose their last message on the failing air. The troops of Tyre assault with fire the grove where Venus veils with light her lovely hair. Trembles the tide beneath the tall martello that decks the harbour with its wreck of thunder. Fretting with flowers white and flowers yellow, the foss of flame into its last surrender. Night on my truckle bed, your ease of slumber, sleep in salt arms the steering night away, abandoned in the fireship moon, one ember glows with the rose that is the distant day. The prisoners rise and rinse their skies of stone, but in their jailer's eyes they meet their own. So we now play mm. Passing the Book. Mm. Um, so I love that final line because it's intriguing, mm. um, that final couplet. So in the, can I just hear that again? The prisoners rise and rinse their skies of stone, but in their jailer's eyes they meet their oh. own. That's really interesting because I find that quite a... Um, it's beautiful to listen to but I find it difficult to understand the meaning of that poem. Um, is there anything you could tell us about, so the troops of Tyre or, or anything about? I think he's, I think this is a reference to his own time during World War II, that, that we have the tower, we have, we have the tall martello again, the tower. And it's the sense that, that these are captives, prisoners of war, prisoners of war yeah. who are being held. And I think, for, for me, it, it's difficult to say whether he is 
saying they are real prisoners of war, captives, mm. or whether they are imprisoned by war themselves, mm. you know, mm. sailors in, in this case, waiting to go forward. And so in their jailer's eyes, they meet their own, that, that they have made the possibly made the decision to be there. Um, the reference to Tyre, I'm not sure about, actually. Um, which um, sounds like a, yeah, some he didn't he didn't thing. didn't serve on the the um, that part of the in that part of the world. I think his service was actually in Portugal right. for a while. Um, but yeah. he he has such a choice of words yeah. and a way of you know playing between them. Mm. Um, mm. It's very beautiful. Yeah, it's a lovely book. You like him. He was also a, a practicing Christian and a Freemason, which I'm not so happy about, but never mind. Cults are cults. Um, and apparently it was very popular and necessary in Cornwall at that time to be a member of the Freemasons. Mm -hmm. But he wrote a great deal about his Christian faith. And uh, mm. this is such a poem. Yeah, this is, it um, has a biblical thing to it. Um, it's... I, w I wouldn't have described this as a religious poem, but mm. it is biblical. But it starts with something that sound, feels very different. Um, anyway, this is called Innocent Song. Who's that knocking on the window? Who's that standing at the door? What are all those presents lying on the kitchen floor? Who is the smiling stranger with hair as white as gin? What is he doing with the children? And who could have let him in? Why has he rubies on his fingers? A cold, cold crown on his head. Why, when he calls his carol, does the salty snow run red? Why does he ferry my fireside as a spider on a thread, his fingers made of fuses and his tongue of gingerbread? Why does the world before him melt in a million suns? Why do his yellow yearning eyes burn like saffron buns? Watch where he comes walking, out of the Christmas flame. Dancing, double-talking, Herod is his name. Love the, the turn and the twist in that mm. poem. It's so clever. And it's sort of starting, starting off as though it's, you know, straightforwardly, as though it's um, about Santa Claus, Father Christmas, whatever, whoever you want to call him. And then it sort of changes to something very different. Because, um, of course, Herod, with Christmas, the biblical story, killing the firstborn child. Um, so this idea of, yeah, who is this who's wormed his way into the house and what's what's happening? Mm. Also, just one little point about um, why do his yellow yearning eyes burn like saffron buns? Saffron buns are a very Cornish thing to eat I couldn't think of the word <laughs> Cornish type of fare they're yeah. a Cornish thing yeah they are and uh, <laughs> I mean, he Herod supposedly kills all children under the age of two just to make mm. sure um, as we, we can make the point that the grave has not been found that would have been quite a lot of children there is no historical reference to it however there is a similar incident in the Old Testament and many things in the New Testament reflect prophecies mm. from the Old Testament mm. and 
seek to bring them into line. He brings it into Cornwall now. Mm. And, and that's the thing about his faith, that, that he is, as far as I understand it, a pretty regular sort of Christian going mm. to church every mm. Sunday. But he is observant. He he means his, his Christian faith. And I think that does come through. But he's exploring whether we are understanding uh, mm. these ideas so again by saying well yes we have christmas and santa which is of course a much later idea mm. what happens immediately afterwards is the massacre of the innocents and maybe we ought to think about that a little bit and be a little bit more conscientious about mm. what you know the way we treat children in the world yes i see what you mean about now about why it's a religious poem yeah i was sort of thinking of it um I won't go into it now, but yeah, I was thinking slightly differently. So... We'll have another episode where we go into it. <laughs> We're going to talk about it privately Maybe not. when you're not listening. <laughs> so here comes the so book. So this again. next one is um, A Visit to Stratford. High in the Warwickshire sky. Sorry, can I just pause that? Sorry, I don't mean to um, sort of speak over you as it were, but is it worth us pointing out that this is where it's a visit to where Shakespeare was born. No. I don't think we should tell people that. This this is uh, all right then. Um, Stratford on Avon in Warwickshire is where the bard, the great bard, lived. Mm. Um, and um, so, you know, I sort of presume, you know, for British people that, that we think about that. But you're quite right. Not every uh, everyone in the the world has. Uh, Shakespeare shoved into their heads in that way. So a visit to Stratford is a visit to the um, the place where Shakespeare um, first drew breath and lived as a child, had his mm. education, mm. and to which he returned uh, frequently. Well, um, it's very much um, a tourist place mm. for people to visit. And he donated his second best bed to his wife <laughs> in his will. What a great man he was. <laughs> so a visit to Stratford. High in the Warwickshire sky, the immaculate sun squeezed a thin heat as the weed and the water coiled round the arches of Clopton Bridge. The fed-up swans, my mind was elsewhere for love, like the spring had cooled. It wasn't the lack of love, but the reason why that sucked at my thoughts as the river, the turning stone, Prince Hamlet, green as a penny, heaved a bronze sigh. Branches flickered with coins. A lean wind sniffed for your bone. Rows of coaches in dangerous colours lay round the park, like out-of-date monsters anticipating the snow. A tree, someone said, you were said to have planted, burned dark, seemed to grope the strong earth for you, 17 feet below. I thought at the birthplace I'd still find you resident there, along with the cradle, the verse safe as germs under glass. All I could see was a hole in a torrent of air, ringed by stiff, relevant flowers and too tight grass. I walked when the Easter light had cautiously risen 
to touch the red hairs of your beard, your skin of pure stone. But the church was locked, though Christ was out of his prison. The thick river beat on the graveyard wall, lurched on. In the orchard, at Shottery, irreconcilable birds savaged with innocent skill the last of the day. An army marched seven times round your city of words. The cottage was silent. The sad, frantic ghosts were away, returning to Cornwall with nothing, as usual, to tell. I slept and half-slept, and the trembling fire blazed clear. The heart, in its zoo of ribs, healed. The soft night fell, and a voice, it was your voice, spoke with the evening bell. Why do you travel so far for what is most near? The smallest coin in your purse buys what is most dear. <laughs> I love that. I can really relate to his disappointment. You go and visit somewhere linked to somebody who perhaps you, you revere, you're really interested in, and then it's this shoddy, shabby, tacky place full of nothingness. I, for many years, had my hair cut by Bob the Barber, not to be confused with Bob the Builder. And um, he, he wasn't he wasn't the best of hairdressers, let's be honest, but it was always fun to... I'm sure you're great, Bob. ...hearing him savage people. He's now sometime retired. Um, but he told me that he had been an ardent Christian and visited the Holy Land, mm. but nothing had happened, you know, no miracles had occurred yeah. when he went to the sacred places. So yeah. the disappointment, and, and he, you know, would uh, therefore, if a vicar came in to have his hair cut, he would be absolutely vicious towards him. <laughs> it was great fun, but I get a better hair, quality Some of hair Some people do enjoy a grudge, don't they? <laughs> he was wonderful. <laughs> This is called To a Poet Who Has Never Travelled. As I rose like a lover from the ravished sea, my cold mouth stuffed with jewels and with sand, the fire falling at my hair and hand, her mother the moon waiting for the fee, I saw you lying by the listening tree. The infant pain lay sleeping at your side, rocked by the naked fingers of the tide, but you saw not my shaking ship nor me. I spread my sweating sea charts at your knee, my rooted tongue burgeoning apes and roses. As noon the sally port of morning closes, my crew hallooing at the drunken quay. My bonny bark was sundered at your door. You smiled, for you had seen it all before. I think this is a really good um, description of that idea of the life of the mind being what matters and and certainly to Causley as you say he was born and bred and lived and died in Launceston which is not a big town um, and we've already heard how disappointed he was when he left Cornwall to go to Stratford-on-Avon um, but wrote a huge amount of poetry very high quality and I love this as a a description of you know somebody doing this that and the other going to sea and away from Cornwall to do that but it doesn't matter what happened you smiled for you had seen it all before 
Certainly have. So that takes us to... John's now going to read Ballad of the Bread Man. If we can find it. What page are we at? 154. Again, this is um, a reflection upon his religious belief and mm. um, trying to bring a different perspective, trying to, to get us to look at um, the heart of that belief, really. Yeah. Um, I may weep during the course of this. Mm. It does happen sometimes. Uh, the Ballad of the Bread Man. Mary stood in the kitchen, baking a loaf of bread. An angel flew in through the window. We've a job for you he said. God in his big gold heaven, sitting in his big blue chair, wanted a mother for his little son. Suddenly saw you there. Mary shook and trembled. It isn't true what you say. Don't say that, the angel said. The baby's on its way. Joseph was in the workshop, planing a piece of wood. The old man's passed it, the neighbours said. That girl's been up to no good. <laughs> and who was that elegant fellow, they said, in the shiny gear? The things they said about Gabriel were hardly fit to hear. Mary never answered. Mary never replied. She kept the information, like the baby, safe inside. It was election winter. They went to vote in town. When Mary found her time had come, the hotels let her down. The baby was born in an annex next to the local pub. At midnight, a delegation turned up from the farmers' club. They talked about an explosion that made a hole in the sky, said they'd been sent to the lamb and flag to see God come down from on high. A few days later, a bishop and a five-star general were seen with the head of an African country in a bulletproof limousine. We've come, they said, with tokens for the little boy to choose told the tale about war and peace in the television news. After them came the soldiers, with rifle and bomb and gun, looking for enemies of the state. The family had packed and gone. When they got back to the village, the neighbours said to a man, that boy will never be one of us, though he does what he blessed well can. He went round to all the people, a paper crown on his head. Here is some bread. from my father. Take, eat, he said. Nobody seemed very hungry. Nobody seemed to care. Nobody saw the God in himself quietly standing there. He finished up in the papers. He came to a very bad end. He was charged with bringing the living to life. No man was that prisoner's friend. There's only one kind of punishment to fit that kind of a crime. They rigged a trial and shot him dead. They're only just in time. They lifted the young man by the leg. They lifted him by the arm. They locked him in a cathedral in case he came to harm. They stored him safe as water under seven rocks. One Sunday morning he burst out like a jack-in-the-box. Through the town he went walking. He showed them the holes in his head. Now do you want any loaves, he cried. Not today, they said. Mm, that's a really interesting one, isn't it? Yep. Because it's told in that um, upbeat way. But, um, and the pace of the, in terms of sort of the poetic structure, 
the pace of it is fast and goes with the upbeat tone and yet there's some yeah pretty poignant grim, stuff poignant and and grim bits so this next one i'm going to read is um a translation made by charles causley of a poem by um garcia Lorca. um he so as well as being um, a fine poet, he was an accomplished translator. Um, at some point soon we'll have a bonus episode about poetry and translation. Mm. Um, but for now, this is simply a reading of um, Song of the One Wounded by Water. I want to go down to the well. I want to climb the walls of Granada to witness the heart entered by the dark stab of the waters. The wounded child was keening beneath a crown of hoarfrost. Pools, cisterns and fountains lifted their swords to the air. Ah, such a tempest of love, such a cutting edge, such nocturnal murmurings, such a white death, such a wilderness of light submerging the sands of the morning. The child lay alone, the city asleep in his throat. A water shoot from his dreams fends off the sea rack's hunger. The child and his agony face to face were two green showers entwined. The child was stretched on the ground, his agony curved about him. I want to go down to the well. I want to die my death by small mouthfuls. I want to cram my heart with moss to see the one wounded by water. Mm. There you go, so that's translation. Um, because we're having to pass the, the book. This has become book a little bit involved. It's been 14, 9. I'm going to leave you, you wrote it, the things. I'm going to leave you I to find it. <laughs> yeah. This poem is called Portrait. He never wrote a bad line in his life and never wrote a good one, come to that. He started out stripped to the buff for strife, but all that naked muscle turned to fat. He never ventured on a cracking limb. He caught in crises the last train but one. And when the moon, the stars, appeared to dim, made no attempt to seize the whirling sun. He blundered, roaring, through the silent wood. He sprayed and pruned and cut it to the bone. And when his children, as the chopped saints stood, imagined all the blood to be his own. He rode to battle on a clanking horse, with similar rage fell on the weak, the strong, gazed on the bursting dead without remorse, and ate his supper up, sang a loud song. In letters eight feet high I watched him tell the secret history of his bleeding heart. Ice moved beneath his feet, and when snow fell, he slowly tore its mysteries apart. Wearing a prize of scalps about his belt, he knelt at last upon the woodland ride, stripping the animal poetry of its pelt, amazed to find that the poor bitch 
had died. Interesting. So a lot of his stuff, as we've already said, is sort of gentle in tone mm -hmm. and so on. But this is very different. Yeah, and and difficult to interpret, um, mm. to understand whether he is in some way writing about himself. He never wrote mm -hmm. a bad line in his life and never wrote a good one. Mm. Whether there's, mm. there's some um, self-reflection in there, or whether he is writing about you know, some individual, but mm. it it's metaphysical. He is definitely entering into a description of a human being um, of a quite psychopathic mean of somebody um, mm. powerfully mm. evil who, you know, sits down, eat, eats his supper up, having chopped his children apart mm. and sings mm. a loud song. Yeah, um, yeah. Which is, uh, you know, Very interesting. Intriguing. So um, this is a very different tone. This next one. He also is known for um, a book called Figgy Hobbin, which was a very popular children's book, and um, so there's a broad range to his mm. his writing. Yeah. And this is called the Wangbird. The Wangbird. Good gracious me! The Wangbird said, "They told me all your kind were dead. What brought you back from that cold bed? A thread." Your face was made of curds and whey. Your speech was black, your lip was grey. Something went in your head, they say. Away. You walked about with quavering tread, refused to eat your birthday spread, bit on a stone and called it bread. Was fed. You followed every wind that blows through desert salt and seething snows. What sharpened path was it you chose? God knows. We can't forget how we were shown the rough pit where your goods were thrown. What thoughts sustained you there alone? My own. Perhaps your weakness you'd have shed if only you had gone and wed. Look at young Harry. Look at Fred. Looking, I said. And looking at you, dear old thing, is that a canker on your wing? And why do you no longer sing? Why is your tongue so stale, and why so limp and lustreless your eye? And why do you no longer fly? Furious, the wangbird stopped his spiel and cried, If that's the way you feel. A last feather fell from his head. Not me, not me, he said, and fled. That's one of those really interesting ones. I find a lot of his poems... Um, hard to understand and we've mm. come across a few yeah um in just the the tiny smattering we've chosen for today um so there's something casual almost flippant but something else very different being said there as well and i think a lot of his for that reason bear a lot of reading as well as listening to this mm. right now bear a lot of um revisiting and revisiting and thinking and people will come to all sorts of different conclusions about mm. what they're about, which is fair enough. And, and there are writers who, who want that. James Joyce was most insistent that people okay. should interpret his work for themselves. And, and you have this strange situation that when Ulysses, when he read through the typescript, um, or it was read out to him, and there were hundreds of errors, typist mm. errors, and he would listen to it and go, let it stand. 
So even having the typist make a mistake was acceptable, mm. and the interpretation that, that the individual had of the work was up to them. There mm. are other writers who, of course, want to be exactly understood. Yeah, um, yeah. There's the whole range. With Wangbird, you have the sense that, are you reading something that's sort of like Edward Lear? Is this a mm. nonsense poem? Yeah. Or is there a deeper meaning concealed? And mm. I think that's a part of his appeal that... Um, is it something like, say, you know, John Lennon's lyrics that you often sort of go, well, what on earth does that mean? You mm. know, um, is it just a little bit of surreal gibberish? I am mm. the Eggman. What what mm. is an Eggman? Mm. I'm the Walrus, and the Walrus was poor. We're later told, or is there a meaning in it? Mm. And I think that's what James Joyce liked—that thought mm. that that you could invest a meaning into something that that he hadn't put there for you. Yeah, you, know, you could find a meaning, and yeah. certainly as a painter, for me, that's tremendously important. Being mm. able to say, "Well, you see the painting as you see it. Mm. You know, it's mm. not as I intended it." Yeah, yeah. And, and I want you to see it as you see it, and as yeah. fully and as deeply as possible. Mm. In my poetry, yeah. I prefer to be exact. I think, but there we go. <laughs> uh, again, a, a, a religious poem. This is about um, the first miracle of Jesus. The um, Wedding at Cana, where he transforms um, water into wine when they, mm -hmm. they run out and um, the off-license is closed and they're not able, it's there are no bars available. It's a pretty poor show, isn't it, at yeah. a wedding reception to run out of wine. And Jesus thinks, all Lovely. right, I'll show them. The ideal guest. Yeah. It's so, a bit um, flippant, I'm not religious. No, no. But it, Jesus, if you are listening, um, <laughs> you're, you're welcome to come to any weddings we attend. Uh, at Kafar Kana, the bus halts its long brawl with rock and tar and sun. The pilgrims trudge to where the miracle was done. Each altar the exact authenticated site of a far famous act, which, if performed at all, may well have been not here. I turn away and walk and watch the pale sun slide the furry shadows bloom along the hill's rough hide beneath a leafy span. In fast and falling light, Arabs take coffee, scan the traveller, smoke, talk, as in a dim blue room. The distant lake is flame beside the fig's green bell. I lean on a parched bay where steps lead to a well. Two children smile, come up with water, sharp and bright, drawn in a paper cup. This place, what is its name? Kfarkana, they say, gravely resuming free, pure rituals of play as pilgrims from each shrine come down the dusty way with ocean-coloured glass, embroidered cloths, none white and sunless bits of brass where children changed for me well water into wine. Mm. I like that. Yep. And so, it's Saul's day. Which is right there. I can do it more easily on my... Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, this one... Um, is another metaphysical one. Um, it's called On All Souls Day. Last night they lit your glass with wine and brought for you the sweet soul cake 
and blessed the room with candle shine for the grave journey you would make. They told me not to stir between the midnight strokes of one and two, and I should see you come again to view the scene that once you knew. Good night, they said, and journeyed on. I turned the key and, turning, smiled, and in the quiet house alone, I slept serenely as a child. Innocent was that sleep, and free, and when the first of morning shone, I had no need to gaze and see if crumb or bead of wine had gone. My heart was easy as this bloom of waters rising by the bay. I did not watch where you might come, for you had never been away. For you have never been away. I like that one. Splendid. It's a beautiful rhythm. So many mm. of, of his do have that beautiful rhythm. And because I'm not very familiar with um, Charles Causley, um, when I was choosing ones for, for me to read out, I went through the index and had a look at um, and chose sort of based on not entirely based on titles, but I thought, oh, I like the look of these titles, and then they were intriguing me or whatever, or I thought mm. there might be something interesting, so I went and then had a look at the poems. So, but a lot of the ones that I like have got that real, um, just beautiful rhythm because I don't often go for rhyming poetry. Mm. No, so. um, I mean I I don't. I tend to write and read free verse, but causely, it, to me, is just captivating. Mm. Um, I, I've played the drums for only for the last 50 years now, and the sense of rhythm in all things mm. becomes mm. extremely significant. And, of course, as a drummer, you, you deal with syncopated rhythms, not mm. simple, straightforward rhythms. And causely is a master of rhythm, mm. um, which is, has become rare, um, mm. I think, among poets. Uh, and rhythm is a, you know, a pulsing, necessary mm. force. Uh, we tend to to just come back into, de dum de dum de dum the I am the, that that sort of mm. rhythm that people often just fit into that. Most of Shakespeare is written in this way. Much poetry is written this way. So it's interesting to find a poet who, seemed to have a more jazz-like, understanding of rhythm mm. that that he, you know, he. he um, is able to play with rhythm a little bit more than than, than most people do. Mm. Um, I must say that as a poet, I never deliberately approach a poem from the point of view of you know, a syncopated rhythm, or mm. you know, I don't mm. use the bossa nova beat. Though, of course, you know, accidentally that will happen if you're sort of thinking about Desfinado or Insensitance or Bill from Ipanema. You might start doing those 11s and 17s without even thinking about it. But this is is not. Bossanova. This is on Launston Castle, which of course was um, a place that he saw very frequently during his life. Winded on this blue stack of downward drifting stone, the unwashed sky, a low slung blanket thick with rain, I search the cold, unclear vernacular of clay, water and woods and rock, the primer of my day. Westward, a cardiograph of granite, Bodmin Moor, its sharp, uncertain stream knifing the valley floor. Ringdove and jackdaw rise over the black boy's bell, circle in jostling air, the town's stopped carousel. The quarry's old wound, plugged with brambles, is long dry, 
dark bands of ivy scale, the torn school, lichens try the building on for size. Beyond the weir, a rout of barrack-tinted homes cancels a meadow out. Down from the ribald hill crest, comas of grasses ride, poppy, valerian, bleed by the lean lakeside. Allotments in a slum of weeds and willows keep scrupulous house. I note a pinch of cows, of sheep, vociferous with paint. A flock of ploughs supplies unlocal colour where the shut pond slowly dies. Below the morning's saw-edged scope of birches, pines, the hour is alchemised. The hurt sun mends, it shines. This was my summer stage, childhood and youth the play. Its text, a fable told when time was far away. But once I was too young, and still am too unsure to cast a meaning from the town's hard metaphor. I cannot read between the lines of leaf and stone, for these are other eyes, and the swift light has gone. By my birthplace the stream rubs a wet flank, breaks free from the moored wall, escapes unwavering to sea. Yeah. Well, it does interest me that, that there is a very fascinating rhythm, to use mm. the swing jazz song title, running through this poem. Mm. And it, it has a, a sort of, um, you know, he, he talks of water in it at, at several times, a sharp, uncertain mm. stream, um, and the, the stream rubs a wet flank. Mm. But it has that sense of almost a tidal, mm. you know, movement. And of course, the tide um, doesn't. It has a regular rhythm, you know, the seventh wave and all of that. But it's not a. It isn't that usual two or four rhythm. It it is something. Um, no, I hadn't thought of that. Slightly of that. uneven. I love know. the phrase "a pinch of cows." Yeah, I heard you laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, it, it is fantastic. Fantastic. He also uses the term "unlocal color," which to people who who don't paint landscape but may not be instantly recognizable local color is the idea that uh, color changes according to the reflected colors around it and it's mm. the basis of the impressionist mm. school that they rather than having black shadows had color in their shadows and so we now have this this clever little a flock of of plows supplies unlocal color Mm. So he brings it back into the sense of this is something that doesn't belong here. It's been moved in yeah. here. It's not local. Yeah. So there's you know a slight pun on the, the idea there. And this fascinating idea that he says towards the end. So we've got this long description of Launston Castle and the town, mm. and he sort of says there's he assumes there's a metaphor there for something mm. but nor as a child nor as an adult can he say what no. it is and there's something quite fascinating about including that in mm. a poem that seems very different to me from what little I know of Charles mm. Causley sort of um, I can imagine other poets doing that but yeah there's a there's a metaphor here somewhere but goodness only knows where or what it is and he's used some very elaborate metaphors you know westward a cardiograph of granite mm. bodmin moor yeah. you know what a, an interesting thought this you know um 
and as you say, it, it's as if he spent his life searching to understand what the metaphor of the place where he lives mm. might be. Yeah. And of course, expressing it in hundreds of poems yeah. over the while. So finally. Yeah, we're going to finish now. Last but not least. Yeah, with um, something I really enjoy. It's called Serenade to a Cornish Fox. As I sailed by the churchyard all on my wedding day, the bells in the seasick steeple leaned over the side to say, hurry to harbour, sailor, fetch the parson by noon, or the fox will lie with your lover under the mask of the moon. Polish your ring, my captain, and crease your trousers well. Take your crack at the tiller, or you'll crack your wedding bell. But the sea is the Matalo's mistress with her big blue baby eyes, and many a master's ticket has she torn in two for a prize. Many a mariner's compass she has boxed with her watery hand, as the fish jumped over the mountain and the ship sailed over the sand. Over the waltzing water, over the sober spray, my ship sailed out of harbour all through the dancing day. Down by the springy river, down by the shrieking locks, watching love die like a doctor, is the patient Mr Fox. Down in the waving meadow, under the hanging tree, he is waiting as my lover comes weeping in from sea. See in her hand are flowers of rosemary and bay, bright as the faithless water that took her love away. Mr Fox, your topper is handy, so put it over your ears. Take the lace out of your pocket and dry her innocent tears. Your coat is made of satin, your wallet as gold as a harp. The gloves on your delicate fingers hide your nails so sharp. A whisper the sea is randy and runs all over my head that she pulls me all so willing to her oozy marriage bed. Farewell, my love, my honey, as my ship sails through the dark. They have said the same of sailors since Noah built the ark. May your daughters wear like diamonds their virtue at their throats. May your sons, like brave sea bandits, never take to the boats. Only the fool or the poet cuts down the flashing tree to burn its belly with fire and take to the jealous sea. I really enjoy that. It's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is, um, we've got little yellow notes in ours, but this is the collected poems of, of Charles Causley, 1951-2000. And um, it's a jolly good read. I, I often find if, if I read a collection of poems by, I remember reading Louis McNeese when I was, uh, oh. because I'd read Prayer oh. Before Birth and I really loved this poem and I was oh. about 16 and way too young to be reading a collection of Louis McNeese's poems. And there was only one other poem in the book, that, oh. you know, which was oh. a poem called Bagpipe Music that really attracted me. Oh. But with Causley, there is nothing that, that doesn't take my interest. He he writes at a, a level of quality, and you know that it's also down to my taste. I, I mm. don't wish to mm. criticise Louis McNeese. Um, Preferable mm. Birth is one mm. of the great poems, I think. But and I must come back to it fifty years later now and mm. see what I think. I probably think it's absolutely wonderful. But there's more value for money per square inch in this than, than in in many collections of poetry. There there is nothing weak or or feeble in this great fat volume so mm, mm. um that's well, 
Well, thank you for introducing him to us. Well, my pleasure, absolutely. Um, and elsewhere, we've uh, we have Timothy Winters, which is his famous poem, which we read yeah. in another episode. And I have yeah. to watch them all to see which one it was. <laughs> um, this has been Lyrical Wax, and um, I'm John Atak. Thank you so much for your time. Please make a comment. Absolutely, please. And um, I'm Ursula Wake, and this has been Lyrical Wax. Thank you very much for your time. Goodbye. <laughs>